tonight we conclude our four-part journey through Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 is our scripture reading. Our text will be the last two verses, verses 12 and 13. But of course, we'll read the entire chapter, 12 and 13. Isaiah 55, listen, this is God's word, beginning of verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food, Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you." Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Well, if you are in the middle of a trying time and it does not seem like there's light at the end of the tunnel, a word of promise that things will get better is always reassuring. The problem is, for most of us, uh, that reassurance comes from someone who does not have the ability to change our circumstances or to actually make things better for us. It's really nothing more than a hopeful wish for us. Well, here in Isaiah chapter 55, the message of future joy and peace for God's people comes in the middle of their sadness and of their great profound discomfort in the exile. And this is a message for them of hope and joy and peace in their future. The time of writing, their land is going to be invaded. The city walls, the temple will be torn down. 
they will be uprooted from the land, taken away in violence. And they're taking, being taken from the land God had given them that had not only been their home, but it was a sign of God's promises and of his blessings to them and of his presence with them. The land is more significant to them than your home address is to you. And all this will be lost, and all this will be lost for good reason. They are about to be punished for their sin of forgetting God, of sacrificing to and serving the other gods of the nations around them, the ones they were supposed to have dispossessed. And so this word in the second half of Isaiah is a word of reassurance. God, after a time, will take them back. And he won't want to have them come back with their tails between their legs. He warmly, insistently invites them to come back as if to an extravagant feast they could never afford if they had to pay for it, at no cost, even if they had money for it. He promises to restore to them a kind of kingdom uh, that will be eternal in the line of David. And he even promises that other nations will join them. They will find a God, their God, who they feared had left them and who had in some sense done that. They will experience the forgiveness of a compassionate God they had no right to expect. And all because they served a God whose ways and thoughts are so far above their own, both in terms of holiness and perfections, but also in his, in his capacity and his desire to forgive and to restore. And all this is communicated to them as God's word of promise through the prophet Isaiah. And as we learned from last time, even within the prophecy, within the word, we have commentary about the word, which is, it's not just content. God's word is not just content, but it's described in terms of its power, what it can do, what it will do, what it does. Because God speaks with purpose, and his word does what he intends to do. His promise isn't just a kind wish for you. And we were invited last time to think back to creation, where God spoke and things came into being. We were invited to look ahead to uh, what God did in the sending of his eternal word, his son, who speaks and who does perfectly what God had sent him to do. The one, for example, who stood in front of a grave and called out to a dead man, commanding him to come out, and by the power of his voice, the dead man who had no ability to obey that command, obeyed the command, became alive, and came out. The same Savior who has come to you, and who spoke into your lives and drew you, made you alive out of your death to sin and made you alive in him. The power of God 
who came perfectly to do the will of his Father. Well, now back to our text. This text, this word, God speaks, is a word descending like the rain or the snow, watering the earth to produce fruit, accomplishing that for which God had purposed it. And here, God's purpose is restoration, salvation, renewal, return. God's word comes with a promise of salvation. It's, again, the form of an invitation to return, a reminder that he has remembered his covenant, a prediction that uh, the whole world will be drawn to him through them, and a reassurance that he wants to be found by his people. And a bold and comforting claim, he will forgive those who come back to him. And a guarantee, his word will do its work. And now in these last two verses, 12 and 13, he reminds us that all this is for a great grand purpose. He is going to elevate his name and his reputation by bringing them back into the land in a joyful procession. And so as we look more closely at these uh, final two verses, I want you to hear them as, as this, a call to you to anticipate and to participate in the joy of our salvation, a call to you to anticipate and participate in the joy of our salvation. God is going to elevate his name. He's going to magnify his reputation by giving you a full and free salvation in Jesus Christ that clearly has a future aspect to it. So anticipate it. But also is already yours, so participate in it. God is going to elevate his name, magnify his reputation by giving you full and free salvation in Christ, giving you joy and peace. You'll know that better in the future, but you have it too already now. I want to walk through this text with you by looking at the primary images. I think this is one of the more helpful, or at least more interesting ways, I think, <coughs> pardon me, of looking at Isaiah 55, 12 and 13. So first we'll take the mountains and the hills and the trees together, and then secondly we'll see the cypress and the myrtle replacing the thorns and the briars. The mountains and the hills and the trees. And the title of the sermon is as close as I'm going to get to the sound of music, but the hills are alive. What are we to make of the image here of mountains and hills breaking out into song, of trees of the field clapping as if in applause? Well, some commentators have a hard time with this imagery or at least uh, want to stress or remind us that this is clearly metaphorical language. It's obviously hyperbolic, even. And they'll go on to say that God's salvation is so epic, we might even say earth-shattering, 
It's as if creation itself stands up, takes notice, the mountains and the hills and the trees line the roads leading up to Jerusalem and turn that into some kind of a parade route and break out into songs and cheers and applause as God's people make their way back home from exile. And there's something to that. We might remember the words of Psalm 98, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. We just sang that. We just sang Psalm 98. Or as New Testament Christians, perhaps we remember the words of Romans chapter 8, how creation is groaning, having been subjected to the constraints of sin by Adam's sin and by our sin, and how creation is longing for a deliverance. And again, there's something to that, but there's, I think, more going on than that as well. If you were here this morning, and I can assure you, Philippi and I did not plan this, but you heard the words of Micah 6, verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Remember what he said there. The hills and the mountains are being called on to uh, as witnesses in God's courtroom in his lawsuit against his people. But you could ask the question, why? Why are the hills and the mountains being called on as witnesses in Micah? And why then are the hills and the mountains uh, breaking forth into singing here in Isaiah 55? Well, they're being called as witnesses because they were present at the scene of the crime. They were eyewitnesses. Go all the way back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12. As the people are coming into the land, Moses says to them, uh, God through Moses says to his people, these are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do when you get into the land of the Lord, uh, the God your fathers has given to you to possess. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. That's Deuteronomy 12. It says, as you go into the land, you're going to find these little shrines, these little places scattered around the land where all these nations have all their little poles and their idols and their carvings and they fall down and they worship and they have little altars and they offer things and, and they're, they're praying to believing, trusting in all kinds of other gods. You go in, send the people out, destroy the people, Destroy those altars on the hills, on the mountains, under the trees. You shall tear down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, burn their asherim, those poles with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship Yahweh, your God, in that way. Well, now you can look ahead with me to Isaiah 65 and hear these words. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. 
I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says Yahweh, because they made offerings on the mountains. They insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. And you could travel through the books of Kings and Chronicles and uh, through Uh, Isaiah and Micah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Joel and Hosea and more. And each one will describe the many ways God's people abandoned him, forsook him, and turned instead to the gods of the nations around them. And they would uh, abandon Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem and they would return to the shrines and to the altars that were already there that they had not torn down or that they had rebuilt or the ones they built beside those ruins of those former ones and they would build their own on the hills and on the mountains and under the trees. These sins were primarily the cause of the exile. And the mountains and the hills were not just at the scene of the crime, they were the scene of the crime. And so remember verse 7, in verse 7 of Isaiah 55, and, and then in a few other places in chapters 44, 49, God had said, let the wicked and the unrighteous return to Yahweh. Let them come back to our God. He will abundantly pardon. Chapter 44, I have blotted out your transgression. I blotted out your transgression like a cloud, like a, your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, has glorified, will be glorified in Israel. And just a few chapters later, 49. A few earlier from this chapter. Sing for joy, O heavens. Exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people, will have compassion on his afflicted. You see, the mountains and the hills and under the trees were the exact places where the people had committed their most heinous crimes against the Lord, their most profound idolatry that had led them into exile. And now as God is restoring them, as he is forgiving them, as he is bringing them back, the Lord himself calls on the mountains and the hills and the trees to celebrate. He commands them to witness what he is doing in the restoration, which is undoing and even better than undoing what he had done in the exile for the crimes, for the sins committed in those places against him. Well, the second set of images includes the thorns and the briars being replaced by cypresses and myrtles. You hang on to the mountains and hills and trees for a moment, but look with me at at this uh, verse 13. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And here you're to imagine a nation returning to its land after 70 years, streaming up in uh, procession, finally released from bondage, going home. And if you're a gardener, 
and you go for vacation on, uh, for a week and you come back to your gardens, there will be weeds. So what are these people returning to? Well, among all the many conditions the land might be in or that we could imagine it being in, Isaiah describes the land as having been overtaken and overrun by thorns and thistles, briars. Of course, this is a bit of a layout for uh, Reformed Christians or people who've known their Bibles for a long time. But it does invite us again, doesn't it, to go back to the curse in Genesis chapter 3. Where God, who banishes Adam and Eve from the garden, banishes them into a world having, uh, having to leave that beautiful, lush garden. And he sends them out to this world and says to Adam, because you listen to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. Thorns and thistles clearly representative of all that is wrong with creation under the fall. So now when the Lord brings the Israelites into the promised land uh, the first time, he brings them into a land, he tells them, has already been cleared for them. It's been planted. He's bringing them to fields and to vineyards and to uh, built houses and dug wells. But now having taken them out of the land and 70 years later bringing them back in, he's saying practically speaking 70 years of exile means the ground is going to return not to its natural state but to its state under the effects of sin, under the power of sin, without people there to tend it, to rule over it. It has become overrun with weeds. But there's another layer even to this as well. There's a sense in which these weeds, these uh, briars, these thorns and thistles are, uh, represent God's people, or at least some of them. Back in Isaiah chapter 5, the Lord had used the image of a vineyard not to speak so much of the land, the dirt, but of his people. He describes planting them, tending them, making them productive. His people are his vineyard. And in the exile, he says, again, Isaiah 5, Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns will grow up. And in Isaiah chapter 10, he describes himself in his resplendent glory and holiness as a fire, as flames. The light of Israel will become a fire, his holy one a flame. It will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. You put all this together at one level, clearly, yes, the, the, the ground, the dirt, the land would have been overrun with weeds, with thorns, and with thistles. And with God's people returning to the land, they get to work in, in removing, pulling the weeds, planting, and seeing 
good, fruitful, beautiful, valuable trees growing. But in the exile, we also have this picture of God weeding his people. And it's in a way that enriches our understanding, perhaps, of our Lord's parable of the wheat and the weeds in Matthew 13. The picture, one both of restoration after a period of alienation, but also of purity after pruning. Instead of thorns shall come up the cypress, instead of briars shall come up the myrtle. Literal weeds will give way to cultivated plants. The weeds among the people would become or be replaced by delightful, fruitful, valuable trees. The curses of God on his people are turned to blessing, both with respect to this new creation. Isaiah will say more about that in the last couple of chapters. This glorious new creation that will be heavily populated, not only by his people purified, but by nations streaming in to be with them. But now the curses are going to be banished because the Lord is satisfied. The Lord is restoring and renewing and forgiving. You can't help but notice the story of Jesus on his way to his crucifixion. As he ascends the hill, Simon of Cyrene carrying his cross, Luke chapter 23, Jesus goes, I don't think by accident, with a crown of thorns. And as the crowd and the women mourn on account of him, he quotes from the second half of Isaiah of Hosea, rather 10, verse 8. That verse begins, here's the part he does not say, but is clearly to be understood. <clears throat> the high places and the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorns and thistles shall grow up on their altars. But here's what Jesus does say as he finishes the quotation. He says, in that day, they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Jesus is going to the cross, bearing on his head the sign and symbol of the curse way back from Genesis chapter 3. And he's going to bear the curses of God on our sin. He's going to destroy the places of idolatry. He's going to destroy the altars. He's going to destroy sin and all of its effects right up unto death. And he's going to be raised from the dead. But hear what he says as he's he's going to the cross. He gives this warning. There will be people outside who do not, persistently do not want to know him or to have their sins laid on him. And in that day, they are going to call out to those same mountains, to those same hills, fall on us, cover us, spare us from this impending disaster of God's wrath that will be about to be unleashed as Jesus quotes that in moments as he's going to the cross. Well, we have then this rich imagery of the mountains and the hills singing and trees clapping and thorns and thistles being replaced by fruitful and beautiful, valuable trees. 
And what's the point? Well, it's in the last two lines of verse 13. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Now, the meaning of this might seem just a little elusive at first until we settle this question. To what does the it refer? It shall make a name for the Lord. What's the it? Well, I'm persuaded along with many others that he means here the entire kit and caboodle, all of God's acts of granting a spirit of repentance, of granting restoration, of providing for the return, granting to them renewal, and their response of praise. Bringing them in with joy and peace. That reassurance that he really does love them. He really is satisfied with the punishment they have had to endure, that chastisement that has brought them back to himself. And that he's not only bringing them back, but they and all creation are rejoicing in this restoration. God's commitment to his people, to his promises, their hard time in exile is completed, that he'll accept their repentance, that he will make himself discoverable findable to them, that he will restore them to his favor, that he will uh, receive them in joy with peace, replant them in the land, receive from them and from all creation praise and adoration. All that, all that will lead to God's everlasting glory being exalted. It, what? All of God's plan come to expression in the people returning to Jerusalem. But even that, of course, a sign that shall not be cut off, but is surely to be blown up and made even greater. The Lord's reputation is at stake. He had said, these are my people, and I'm going to do great things for them, and they got taken into exile. The Lord's honor, his reputation is at stake and he is going to bring them back and he has a way to do that. And he is going to receive unending glory and praise. Their salvation in Isaiah 55 was future. Ours is also future, but it's also even more firmly established than they could have imagined here, except for God's unbreakable promise, his powerful, purposeful word, his assurance to them he would do this, and he did. And then he did far more. We have the joy and the peace of a future salvation held out for us when we know There will be no more thorns or briars or any other expression of the frustrations of sin in our lives, in our hearts, in our relationships, in this world, in our jobs, wherever. Gone. We have the joy and the peace of knowing we can enter into God's presence and know His favor. Because he looks at our sin and he says, I've put that on my son who went up the hill and put sin 
and death to death in him. Christ is coming, and so we anticipate joy and peace. But Christ has already, received, has already earned for you victory in his death and resurrection. So you participate now in that joy and in that peace. Christ is coming. It gets better than this, but it's pretty good even now. And through all this, God magnifies himself, establishes his reputation in saving you through his son who has borne your sin. That faithful, suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who does all that's commanded, all that's expressed in Isaiah 55. And so the Apostle Paul ends with, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, great chapter, for our joyful time of immersion in it. Thank you for its riches. We feel like we've only begun. Thank you for all that you have taught us, all the great pictures in here of your pressing invitation to come, how you satisfy our desires, and how you grant to us a glorious future of hope with joy and peace. Lord, allow this to shape the way we enter this week. Allow this to grant, to give us at rest and a sense of your presence and blessing that you do love us and that you have for us a future that is perfect, sinless, all because of your Son. We look to him with thanksgiving, receive our praise we offer it in his name and all God's people say together, amen.